It's good to be here this morning and to have the time we do to gather here to worship our God. When we think about what God has done for us, one of the terms we might use is the term reconciliation, or He's reconciled us to Himself. There's a few passages that I want us maybe just to read in opening that would emphasize that that's what God has done on our behalf. The first one being in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verses 6 through 11. There he writes, we're told, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more then, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, But we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And so especially in verses 10 and 11, we find that we've been reconciled to God. We were once the enemies of God, yet now we've been brought back into our right relationship to God through the death of His Son. The second passage to look at that we're just going to use to start, kind of start the lesson would be in the book of Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23, it says, Therefore it pleased the Father that in Him, or in Christ, all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He's reconciled in the body of His flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so again, it was God's pleasure to reconcile us to Himself through the death of His Son and the body of His flesh. And that changes then our relationship that we once had with God back to a right relationship with Him once again. And then the passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that was part of our Scripture reading this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 18 says, Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now, as we just kind of read those three passages together, you can see how much God is concerned about our reconciliation. That this is something, obviously, that is important to God. And you see that demonstrated in the fact that He's willing to give His Son in order to make such possible. Another way, though, that word sometimes is used in the Bible about reconciling is that sometimes it's used in our relationships one with another. 
In the book of Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount will give some instruction along this line. In verse 21 beginning, He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But then He says, But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. And then he says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, maybe you're going to worship God or make some sort of sacrifice, as he might be the picture here, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Things are not right, obviously, between you and this other individual. What does he tell us to do? He says, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Not only is God concerned about us being reconciled to Himself, but there's a concern in Scripture that when there's an issue between two people, especially you could say between two Christians, that God wants that to be reconciled. God wants us to seek reconciliation with one another in those situations. And in doing so, we are imitating, you could say, the character of God. If you think back earlier in Matthew chapter 5 to the Beatitudes as we sometimes call them, and Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9, Jesus says there, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Those that are involved in making peace, and that could be maybe helping people be at peace with God, and also making peace with one another, those are people that are sons of God. Why? Because they're imitating the actions of their Father in heaven. Toward the end of chapter 5, we have a section in verse 43 where Jesus will say, You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And so he tells us we don't just love our neighbor, but we also must love our enemy. And why do I do that? Because that's a reflection of the kind of love that God has for His enemies. He loves them. He does good for them. He gives them rain and fruitful seasons, as some passages would point out. And so He blesses the wicked, and yet they're enemies of Him. And we need to have that kind of love, that kind of concern, if we're going to imitate our Father in heaven. And so I want us to spend some time this morning thinking about this concept of reconciliation. One In one part, how God has reconciled us to Himself, and how that relationship has been restored, and then thinking about some principles that we can see from that as to maybe how we then reconcile when there's a problem between two individuals. And we're maybe going to use those three passages, Romans 5, Colossians 1, 2 Corinthians 5, to sort of serve as some of the basis for some of the points that we're going to be making. To begin with, reconciliation is necessary because people have become enemies or have been alienated from one another. We saw that in Romans chapter 5 and in verse 10. Romans 5 verse 10 talks about, for if when we were enemies, 
We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. And so why was reconciliation important? Why was it necessary? Because we were the enemies of God. In Colossians chapter 1, Colossians 1 verse 21, again this point is being made when it says, "...and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He is reconciled." Why did God need to bring about reconciliation? Because we were the enemies of God and we had become such, Colossians 1.21, by our wicked works, by our sinful actions. I think sometimes some people might think, well, I'm not some terrible person. So I was really not the enemy of God. And yet I think Scripture reminds us someone doesn't have to be maybe what the world would view as a terrible individual to become the enemy of God. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of James chapter 4 for a moment. James chapter 4 and verse 4. Here he addresses them in some rather strong language early on when he says, Adulterers and adulteresses. He says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? He says, Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know, I don't have to be the worst person that ever lived to be the enemy of God. But if I want to be a friend of the world, that would be enough, according to James 4, to become the enemy of God. And so all of us, Romans 3 verse 23, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Or Romans 3 verse 10 would talk about how that there's none righteous, no, not one. And so we have kind of these statements like that that remind us that all of us at some point have become the enemies of God. And that sin then has ruined the relationship that we once enjoyed with God. You think about in the Garden of Eden, you can see an illustration maybe of this. In Genesis chapter 2, man is placed into the Garden of Eden and there is living in perfect harmony, you could say, one with another, and certainly in harmony as well with God. Maybe a summary of that would be, like in verse 25 of chapter 2, they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And yet in chapter 3, sin comes into the world as the serpent deceives Eve, and she partakes of the fruit, and then Adam eats with her. And then the text would say, uh, maybe beginning in about verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened, And they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And notice their reaction in verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You know, if previously maybe they had had perfect fellowship, perfect harmony in their relationship with God. Now when God is walking in the midst of the garden in the cool of the day, as the text says, He's walking in the garden in the cool of the day, What? how do they respond? Well, they hide. They're not in that good relationship any longer with God. You know, when it comes to our relationship with God, I think when it comes to this point, The reason we're separated from God, the reason we are the enemies of God, is not because God has done anything wrong. It's always because I've done something wrong in the relationship. Think about 1 John 1 and verse 5. 1 John 1 and verse 5 reminds us that this is the message which we've heard from Him and declare to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. God doesn't do anything wrong 
And so maybe in our human relationships, this may be a little bit different. When we think about when there's a problem between two people, it could be that one of the individuals is all to blame for the problem. But sometimes in those relationships, when there's enmity and there's alienation that's taking place, sometimes it's the fault of both individuals. Maybe both have some share of blame. And in that sense, both may need to make some corrections in order to be brought back into a right relationship. But when it comes to your and I, our relationship with God, it's not that way. God has not erred. God has not done anything wrong. We have and so God has brought us back to Himself. You think about reconciliation, not only does it, is it necessary because people have become enemies, reconciliation requires the cooperation of both parties in order to be achieved. You know, if God did not desire to have us reconciled to Himself, there's really nothing you and I could do to be brought back in a right relationship with Him. You see that in some of the passages we read early on in our readings. Romans chapter 5 verse 6 says that when we were still without strength in due time Christ died for the ungodly. We were without strength. We couldn't save ourselves. We couldn't deliver ourselves from the problem that we had created for ourselves. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19 it says that it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself by Him whether things in heaven or in, uh, on earth or things in heaven having made peace through the blood of His cross. It pleased the Father to reconcile all things to Himself. And if it did not please the Father, if that was not God's desire, no matter how much I might long for that to happen, it would not take place. And so as well, 2 Corinthians 5 would say, Now all things, in verse 18, are of God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Jesus Christ. And then in verse 19 would say, That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. It took God's longing in order for this to happen. Because no matter how much I did, no matter how much, how much I wanted to be brought back into right relationship with God, if He didn't desire it, it wouldn't happen. 2 Timothy 1 verse 9 talks about how God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. In other words, I can't do enough to just earn it but according to His own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. I couldn't save myself. You couldn't save yourself from the sins that we have committed. But God, as we've pointed out, has demonstrated how much He wants us to be reconciled to Him. He demonstrates His love as we read Romans 5 verse 8. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. St. Corinthians 5.21, in that passage, it talks about that He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. God shows how much He longs for reconciliation by giving His Son to die on our behalf. Maybe just a passage outside of the verses we've already looked at in 1 John chapter 4. and 1 John chapter 4 and verses 9 and 10 specifically, and we might look at a few things as well in the context. 1 John 4 verse 9. It says, in this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. That demonstrates how much God loves us. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And in the context, you could think about 
that in verse 8 he says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Or in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God longs for us to be made in a right relationship with Him. He gave His Son. That demonstrates that. And if He has that kind of love for people who do not love Him, how much more should we as well have that kind of love and longing for people, maybe at the moment, who do not care much about you and I? One of the impressive things about God's reconciliation of us to Himself is that oftentimes when someone does something wrong to me, I'm tempted maybe to sit back and say, well, they need to come back to me. And they need to make some sort of apology to me. They need to seek some sort of reconciliation with me. And I forget that there's an obligation on my part as well. In Matthew chapter 5, I think you see the obligation on the part of the one maybe who's sinned against somebody. Your brother has something against you. You go in and seek reconciliation. But you could think about passages like Matthew chapter 18. And verse 15, that if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you've gained your brother. And I think God demonstrates for us one who took the initiative, who took the first step in bringing us back to himself. And if I'm going to imitate the character of God, then I need to be willing to take that initiative myself as well. I need to be willing to take the first step in trying to resolve whatever problem might exist between me and someone else. God has a strong desire for each and every one of us to be reconciled to Himself. And yet notice the language of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 20. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20 says, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, He says, We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. As much as God wants us to be right with Him, that will not happen without our cooperation. That's why Paul and the apostles would have to plead and implore with people to be reconciled to God. He would go on in chapter 6 to say that we then as workers together with Him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. The grace of God is out there. It's made available and yet I must avail myself of that grace. I must avail myself of the forgiveness that is available. Sometimes we may be singing a song, a line like something like this, Oh, how He wants to come in. That's the picture. God wants us to be right in a right relationship with Him. He wants us to be reconciled. And yet, as the same song I think would suggest... What is He doing? He's waiting for us to open the door. He won't barge in. He won't just take over. I need to be reconciled. There's a, a responsibility on my behalf. And when we have a, a conflict between two people, you may sit back and you may long for this person to be brought back in a right relationship with you. That the relationship be restored to what it once was. And yet that may not be possible. Why? Because it takes the other person as well. And hopefully we're not the person in some relationship where there's a conflict that we're standing out there and this other person wants to be made in a right relationship with us to restore the relationship and we're standing back and saying, well, I'm not interested. 
Think about in the book of Romans chapter 12 for a moment. Romans 12 verse 18. Maybe that's why this command is given in this way. In Romans 12 and verse 18. That if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. As far as what's on my side, I need to make sure I'm living peaceably. I need to make sure I'm seeking to be restored in this relationship. But the other person may not. And so as much as depends on me, I need to be like God. I'm seeking to resolve whatever problem might exist between me and my brother in a godly way. Maybe a a kind of a third point about reconciliation we can see from these texts is that reconciliation requires forgiveness. Reconciliation requires forgiveness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 uses some language that maybe we don't use so often to describe this process. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19 says that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. And then it says not imputing their trespasses to them. We might not use language like that a whole lot. In other words, you could say their sins, their trespasses are no longer on them. They're, they're no longer held accountable for, responsible for them because they've been forgiven. They've been taken away. They've been blotted out. And that happens because God's willing to forgive. That's how that takes place. In Romans chapter 5, you could think about this as well. Romans chapter 5 and verse 9 talks about there that much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. It's through the blood of Christ that we have our sins forgiven. Jesus, when He instituted the Lord's Supper in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 28, or actually verse 20, yeah, verse 28 would say, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So His blood makes it possible for us to have forgiveness. And that's how we've been justified. That's how we've been reconciled back to God. You think about God's forgiveness for just a moment of our sins. And there's some pictures describing it throughout Scripture. One such picture that if you're studying the book of Isaiah, you're going to run into eventually It's in Isaiah chapter 44, Isaiah 44 and in verse 22, where it says there that I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Think about like our sins being blotted out. That makes me think about perhaps like if you had something written on a piece of paper and now it's been erased, it's been cleared out, it's blotted out. You don't see it any longer. You have other descriptions and passages even in the Old Testament that describe such actions. You could think about in the book of Isaiah, I mean Psalm 103, Psalm 103 and in verse 12. Psalm 103 verse 12 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as you removed our transgressions from us. That's a great picture. Think about what God does in His forgiveness. He removes our sins from us. The passage, I believe it would be as well, in the book of Micah chapter 7. In Micah chapter 7, toward the end of that book, in verses 19 and 20, He says, He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths 
of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. The picture of our sins as though they've been cast into the sea. That's how our sins are done. They've been removed from us. And as a result, God will make statements like in Hebrews chapter 8, in Hebrews chapter 8 and in verse 12 of the new covenant that He prophesied of in the days of Jeremiah, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. When God forgives us of our sins, He's not going to bring them up again against us. He remembers them no more. When it comes then to our reconciliation with God, that's what it need, we needed. We needed that kind of forgiveness. And when it comes down to a conflict between two individuals, and maybe they're seeking to resolve this and reconcile their problems with one another, what is it going to take? It's going to take that kind of forgiveness. In the book of Colossians chapter 3, in Colossians chapter 3 verse 12, he tells us, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, reminding us maybe of who we are and therefore what we're going to be called to do. He'll say that you need to put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Those are qualities that are going to be helpful if we're trying to resolve problems with one another. But then notice in verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. That's the kind of forgiveness I need to be willing to extend to other people that have wronged me, that have mistreated me, that have maybe been hurtful towards me, just as we have wronged God and He's been willing to forgive us. Jesus gives a parable to illustrate that truth in the book of Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18, really there's a section we could spend a lot of time at. Jesus has told us in verses 15 through 17, how do you deal with a brother who sins against you? Peter, eventually then in verse 21, came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. You know, he's just given instruction that you go and you talk to your brother when he gets involved in sin and if he hears you, you, you've gained your brother. And Peter might be wondering, how often do I have to forgive this person? And he says, well, maybe it's seven times. And Jesus will say to him, verse 22, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And maybe the idea is going to be as much as is needed. Luke 17 would say that if your brother returns to you seven times in a day saying, I repent, you forgive him. Verse 23, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when, when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, an enormous amount of money. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Very much a picture, you could say, of what God has done to us. We owe Him something that's a sum we could never repay. 
And God has been willing to release us of that, to forgive us of that debt. Sometimes we act very much like this same servant in verse 28, but that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, much less than what this other person had owed his master. And yet notice how he acts. He laid his hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. His servant, verse 29, does basically the same thing he had done back up in verse 26. And yet, how does this servant react to that plea for patience? And he would not, verse 30, but went and threw him into the prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not have also had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to their tortures until he should pay all that was due him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Sometimes maybe we're like that person though. After God has forgiven us of so much and now somebody's done something against us that in comparison with what we've done against God, is really small and insignificant. And in light of what they've done against God, is small and insignificant when what they've done against us. And yet we're unwilling sometimes to forgive them. We're unwilling to have the kind of compassion God's had on us now toward this other individual. Maybe by remembering how much we've been forgiven. It'll help us have genuine, true forgiveness. I was reading something recently. Someone talked about how sometimes we give fake forgiveness rather than kind of, I guess you could say, true forgiveness. Well, we might tell someone, I forgive you. But our actions and our words from that point on don't act and demonstrate that we've really forgiven that person. I think this passage is not talking about just saying, well, I forgive you. Because notice in verse 35, it says, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother's trespasses. This is talking about the real thing. That it's not just in word only that I just say I forgive you, but that I really do from my heart forgive this person. And that that forgiveness, as we said, is mirrored after the forgiveness that God has given us. Sometimes... Someone has wronged somebody as we have wronged God. That person may come to realize their wrong, their sin. They may come and repentance and asking and seeking forgiveness of someone else. And yet reconciliation is impossible. Why? Because sometimes that person is unwilling to forgive that person. That forgiveness leads us then to the fourth point I wanted to make about reconciliation. That reconciliation, because of that forgiveness, takes people who formerly, as we said, were enemies and people who were alienated and turns them, you could say, into friends. Now when you think about someone being a friend of God, you might think in your mind of Abraham, who was called the friend of God. 
It was called that. Second Chronicles 20, verse 7. You might just note these passages. Isaiah 41, verse 8. Second Chronicles 27, Isaiah 41, verse 8. And then we'll look at James chapter 2, verses 20 through 24. James 2, verses 20 through 24. It says, do you, But do you want to know, foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect and the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Now Abraham was justified, Romans 4 would say, by faith. This passage, I think, as well, would emphasize that. Verse 23, Abraham believed God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. I think Romans 4 would point out it was not of works. It was not in the sense that he had perfectly done everything right. He sinned, and so it wasn't that he had kept the law perfectly, and that's not how he stood justified before God. But James chapter 2 would say that Abraham was justified by works and not by faith only. It was by those works that demonstrated his faith. And as a result of his obedient faith, Abraham, you could say then, was called the friend of God. Not that he had always done everything right or lived sinlessly perfect, but here's a man who obediently trusted and did what God told him to do. You and I can be, I think, the friends of God in a similar way. In John chapter 15, this passage may have some immediate application to the apostles, but in John chapter 15, Jesus will say in verse 13, that greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Think about that. That Jesus obviously is demonstrating He wants us to be His friends because He gave His life for us. Then He says in verse 14, You are My friends if you do whatever I command you. Not that we deserve to be the friend of God. As we've said, we've all separated ourselves by our sins from God. And yet if we'll be willing to obey Him, if we'll be willing to humbly trust Him, we can be made the friend of God. Is that maybe not the picture of Luke chapter 15? When that younger son who had went out to the far country and wasted his father's possessions with righteous living, that as in verse 20 he arose and came to his father, and yet while he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son had this speech prepared and he enters into it in verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. That would describe, you could say, all of us who've sinned against God. We're not worthy to be his children. What does the father do though? Verse 22, the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Think about that picture that the father receives him back. When the son returns as a penitent, humble individual. Maybe when we're in the midst of conflict with somebody. And now things have been resolved. If reconciliation takes place, what should happen is the relationship, you could say, should be brought back to where it once was, if not closer. Second Corinthians chapter 2. 
here's a man, it seems, that in maybe the man of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that Paul had told them they needed to deal with this sin that was in the midst of that congregation. They needed to withdraw from this man so his soul could be saved. It seems that they've done that. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6 says, this punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. And this man obviously now has been repentant of his sin, penitent of his sins. Verse 7 says, So that on the contrary ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. And sometimes when reconciliation is trying to take place, that's what we have to be willing to do, to forgive and comfort and reaffirm our love to someone. Maybe has hurt us. Maybe has mistreated us. And the passages we looked at early on, I think about Colossians 1. We were the enemies of God. We were alienated by our wicked works. Yet, in Jesus' sacrifice, He's reconciled us to Himself. Verse 22 talks about in the body of His flesh through death. What are we now? To present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight. That happened because He was willing to forgive us, obviously. But reconciliation takes these people who formerly were the enemies of God and now this is how God sees us. And that's a great blessing. And if we've received that from God, certainly we should be willing to extend that kind of forgiveness then to others. I think God's reconciliation demonstrates how much is capable in a relationship when people imitate His example and are then willing to be someone who is willing to have reconciliation with someone who's wronged them. If you're here this morning, maybe our plea with you would be to do what Paul pled with people to do in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 20. He says, We are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That would be our plea for one who is here in sin this morning. In order to be reconciled to God, you have to hear His Word. Romans 10 talks about how that faith in verse 17 comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. We have to believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus Himself said in Mark 16, verse 16, He who believes and is baptized shall be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. You have to be willing to repent of your sins like those on the day of Pentecost were told to do in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 when Peter said to them, Repent and let everyone of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Confess your faith in Christ. Romans 10 and verse 10 says, With the heart one believes unto righteousness. With the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Be baptized to have your sins washed away. Acts 22 and verse 16 says, And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on the name of the Lord. And having been reconciled to God, then we need we will be holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight. But if you go back to Colossians 1 verse 23 for a moment, He will present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight if, verse 23, that's an important word, if indeed you continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard which was preached to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, became a minister. 
Having been reconciled to God in the past, what must we do now? We must continue in the faith. We can't be moved away. We need to remain steadfast and faithful till the end. So as y'all have been studying in 1 Peter chapter 1, we can receive the end of our faith. Salvation of our souls. 1 Peter 1 and verse 9 here this morning and maybe you're subject to the gospel call. Maybe you need to be reconciled to God either by becoming His child or having sins in your life to repent of those things and seek God's forgiveness as a child of His. We stand ready to assist you if you come as together we stand and sing the song which has been selected.